We're in the midst of political party conference season, the highlight of the year for most of our listeners, I'm sure. The Liberal Democrats, Labour, UKIP and the Conservatives have already had theirs. The Green and SNP ones are going on right now. And Plaid Kimry and the DUP are still to come, among others. But apart from politicos and journalists gossiping about party splits and who wore it best, are the party conferences actually offering any answers to the problems this country faces? Lots of the headlines have been about internal disagreements in Labour and the Conservative Party, but what have they and the other parties had to say about housing, Brexit, investment, our environment and the pound in your pocket? That's what we're asking on the Weekly Economics podcast today. My name's Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So we are back for a new series and to help us digest party conference season so far, we're welcoming back the New Economics Foundation senior economist, Sarah Mahmood. Have you been enjoying the party season, Sarah? Um, well, it's certainly been more dramatic, I think, than mm-hmm. it usually is. Mm-hmm. So I guess in that respect, yes. <laughs> OK, can't wait to hear more about that. A little bit of drama. Um, and we're also joined by Andrew Pendleton, NEF's Principal Director of Policy and Advocacy. Andrew, you've been gripped by party conference season, I am sure. Gripped, yes, that's a word, isn't it? Um, <laughs> that's a word. That I, I mean, party conferences uh, always conjure up this image of kind of cold buffet food at the back of rather grey rooms for mm. me, because that's kind of what they're like if you're actually there. But um, yes, it's been very interesting. There's quite a lot of tumult. I'm sure we'll get onto that. Mm. So before we do launch into party conferences, um, which have had a lot of headlines over the past few weeks, and I'm sure they'll continue to to do so, we'll do our usual headline segment and look back on some other stories that have caught your eyes recently in a bit I like to call Back to Life, Back to Reality. Oh, that was, that was, oh, wow. That's good. I'm in the wrong line of business. (laughs) Okay. Sorry, you're up first. What's been in the news? So I'm sure many of our listeners will remember a little thing called LIBOR, so the London Interbank Offered Rate, which is a benchmark that underpins a lot of really important things like mortgages um, and then also lots of other financial instruments that are really important for our financial system. That's back in the news. It was all over the place a few years ago and over the last few years because there's been big scandals around people in big banks rigging it. The banks have paid billions of pounds in fines and we saw some traders thrown in jail. And this week, the Bank of England, um, so the Financial Policy Committee, finally admitted in public that it posed a risk to our financial system. And this was in minutes that they actually initially thought they'd redact because it could have such a big impact on how people trade in, in the market. So yeah, I thought that was that was really interesting because it's linked to quantitative easing. So what LIBOR actually is, is the interest rate that banks charge each other for borrowing money off each other to kind of cover their liquidity liabilities. And quantitative easing has meant that a lot of banks have loads of reserves, so they're not actually lending to each other that much anymore. So this really crucial benchmark is really hard to figure out. And the confidence in what the banks are reporting is is not there anymore. So this is actually really, really serious and can have really big implications, um, even though it feels like quite a nerdy technical thing. Mm-hmm. So I think um, we'll be looking quite carefully as to what the bank's solution to this is. Interesting. So, Andrew, uh, what have you found interesting recently? What's caught your eye? Well, this is, it, it's a bit dystopian, but um, obviously... 
one of the biggest stories coming out of party conference and really has over the past two weeks has been Theresa May's speech. Mm. And it was hard to watch. <laughs> it was hard to watch without <laughs> actually feeling some sympathy, uh, as mm. well as it being enormously uncomfortable to watch. But it, it, it felt a bit like a metaphor, really, for the position that we're in at the moment with Brexit looming. And there is there are some very dark sides to Brexit. And, you know, with, with the coughing, but also with the letters falling off the backdrop mm. um oh, uh, we, and our, the p45 don't forget the p45 and the p well and the p45 you know we're in a, our politics are very frayed still and very polarized and it's 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 a messy world we're going into it, it's um it just felt to me like it's sort of as well as being hugely unfortunate for the prime minister it it sort of summed up the position we're in somehow Mm, that does feel dystopian. Mm, now, land of coughing that. and falling signs. <laughs> uh, okay, so now for our big question: Do the party conferences have any answers? They're full of party members, fringe discussions on big ideas, and headline speeches from famous politicians. But what are the party conferences actually saying about the issues facing the country right now? The Liberal Democrats focused on a second referendum on Brexit. Labour pledged a cap on credit card debt, a review of PFI contracts and rent controls. The Conservatives promised to extend help to buy, to build more homes and cap energy prices. We still have announcements from the Greens, SNP, Plaid Cymru and DUP conferences to look forward to, among others. But are the party conferences providing credible answers to the big problems we face? Or are they all style and no substance? So, let's dive in. Uh, we're going to focus on the two biggest party conferences first, so Labour and the Conservatives. Labour's conference was in Brighton a couple of weeks ago, and a big pledge from them was to introduce a cap to credit card debt. Uh, Andrew, what did you make of that? Well, it's good. It's very good because the New Economics Foundation is wholly behind it and called for this policy some time ago. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's really significant. So it will affect about 3 million people. Around 3 million people are at risk with their credit card debt of paying more in interest payments than they borrowed in the first place. And sometimes, in the case of nearly half a million people, that's something like two and a half times more. So if you borrow £1,000, you end up paying two and a half thousand pounds back, mm. which is crazy. So the proposal from... John McDonnell, which, is, as, as I say, does, we like to think, originates from the New Economics Foundation, is that the, the credit is capped at 100%. So once you've paid 100% in interest of what you originally borrowed, you don't pay any more. Now, it's very good, and we fully support it, and we'll also be putting pressure on the, on the government to follow and put this in place. And in fact, what it, it doesn't need a new piece of legislation. We think that the regulators, the, um, the FCA, can do this already. Um, they just need a clear signal or clear instruction from government, really, to get on with it. The problem is that not everybody who's, not every household that's got debt is, it has credit card debt. And so this this current proposal only covers credit card debt. So we'd like also to see it extended to all forms of debt, because to be honest, most of us, when we think about this, think, well, you would never have to pay back more than the amount that you originally borrowed. It just sounds crazy. And it, and it is crazy, but an awful lot of people are in that position. And it's also really important to think about the people who are in debt themselves, because I think there's a kind of view of people who get into debt as being as they've kind of imposed it on themselves. But, you know, the fact is, for most people, for a lot of people, they've had to borrow in order to make ends meet. And so it's really important that their voices are heard in this debate and that we 
as the New Economics Foundation is in fact doing, bringing people together who are in that position to amplify their voices. And that's something that has to come through in the policy as well. Mm. So just to clarify, that was not having to pay back more than double the amount you originally borrowed. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. feels reasonable. It, it does feel reasonable. The, the problem is that the, it's kind of an irony, really, or a paradox, not if you're in this position, but the less money you have, the more you're mm. going to pay to borrow. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of golden rule of credit. And if you don't have a bank account, as an awful lot of people still don't have a bank account, you're going to pay loads and loads. The cost of borrowing, the, the interest rate you pay is going to be very high. And I, I mean, that's a cruel irony. There are lots of scoundrels in this market who are making an awful lot of money out of people who can't afford to borrow. And they're willing to lend to people who essentially can't afford to borrow the money. And this is a really good first step or a really good proposal for a first step which would have a significant impact on, you know, up to three million households. But it does need to go further. Mm. Mm. So if this was a step in the right direction uh, from Labour, where did you feel like the Labour Party wasn't taking steps forward? Well, you have to say Brexit, I think, mm. because it was the issue that all of the commentators wanted to talk about with regard to Labour, but also at the Conservatives. And it was the issue that the Labour Party ducked. And essentially that's because, that's for two reasons, I think, really. One is because in terms of the people that voted for Labour in June, they have a very large number of, of people who are pro-Remain who voted for Labour. And in fact, if you look at the British Election Survey, they've made up their mind to do that before the campaign started because Labour is associated, whether it likes it or not, with Remain, which is... Mm. Very frustrating if you're a Liberal Democrat because that was the policy they put in their front window and they didn't get anything out of it because people had already decided that Labour was the party of Remain. However, if Labour isn't the party of Remain, and there is a big debate about that in the party, I think, as well as among the commentators, then, of course, ultimately they risk losing those people. So, mm. And yet, actually, a lot of their core vote are probably quite pro-Brexit. So it's a genuine dilemma for the party. And at the moment, technically, I don't really have to make the running because they'll be looking to the government to make the running. So it's a fascinating position to be in. But where does it leave us? And it goes back to this sense of dystopia in a way, really, because if nobody's actually charting a course through this thing that we're now sort of obliged to do, then we're going to be in a lot of trouble. I think a lot of the solutions that are being offered are really seeing, using it across the board and across the parties are um, things to rebalance our economy, which is really welcome. But it's all in quite vague terms at the moment. And there are like real cliff edges that are emerging in so many areas. So, uh, I mean, the, the financial sector, it, it was in the um, FPC minutes as well about Brexit and how there's so many elements of our financial system that are very likely that are just sort of on hold at the moment and waiting for 2019. But of course, that's manifesting itself in trade, in immigration. Um, there really needs to be a much more detailed picture of how this, all the different options that are on the table could affect our economy and specific policies on how to deal with those. The, one of the most telling things, actually, is that in, you know, the everyone who's been anywhere that's not the UK this summer realises that your pound doesn't buy you anywhere near as much as yeah. it used to. And that's because the pound has devalued as a consequence of the referendum last year quite significantly. Now, that would normally be really good news for exporters. But because exporters don't know what's going to happen next, they're not investing in increasing their production. And so we're not even benefiting in terms of our 
industrial output and exporting from our balance of trade isn't benefiting from mm. the extraordinarily low pound. I'm sorry, this is really depressing. Isn't it? <laughs> no, I'm sure it will get better. It always does. Well, we'll, we'll try and pick it up as we go along. But it is pretty, it's pretty down, isn't it? But I mean, it, it, this is the this this is the dystopian thing. This is the the you know the letters falling off the backdrop, mm. and and somebody needs to pick them up and put them back on. Mm. And the point is, is it doesn't have to be like this. But people need to get real and actually stop talking just big, broad brush kind of. Mm. political narratives and really sort of the nitty-gritty of policy is so important now. So some of the nitty-gritty that did come out was from the Conservatives at their party conference last week. So they said they were going to give a a £10 billion extension um, of the Help to Buy scheme. So first of all, Sarah, could you explain to us what that scheme is? And secondly, is is this a good bit of nitty-gritty? Sure. So um, I think the fact that I have to explain what Help to Buy is Mm. probably gives you a hint as to the the answer to that, uh, the second part of that question. Mm. Um, So Help to Buy is essentially when the government lends the buyers of new build homes 20% of the cost of the home. So essentially buy 20% of the home with you. So it's an equity loan. And that helps people, well, is meant to help people because then you only have to find a 75% mortgage and a 5% deposit. So the idea is you only need a small deposit. Unfortunately, new builds are so expensive that this policy tends to only help people on middle to higher incomes. So some research I've done in the past for shelter um, on 2014-15 data um, suggests using help to buy on an average new build in England is essentially out of reach for 80% of um, working private renters. So house prices to income ratios are so high that this isn't actually that helpful. And that's borne out in the data on people who've already used the scheme. A typical household who's used help to buy has a household income of £44,000. And that is against the UK average of £25,000. The government themselves did an evaluation of the scheme uh, where they surveyed people who'd used it and over half of them could have bought a similar property already. This isn't only potentially unfair, like an unfair use of government funds and support, but it also doesn't make economic sense. And um, this is one of those rare occasions where I'm fully in agreement with the Adam Smith Institute that this is a terrible policy. Because the problem is, is if, if people could have bought anyway, all you have is more money chasing the same amount of homes. And that just pushes up prices. So this isn't really to help young private renters. It's really to keep a speculative development industry afloat. And that's why um, builders' shares jumped well, between two and four percent after the announcement. Mm. So, I mean, is there is there something better that we could be doing on the housing crisis? Theresa May mentioned in her speech that there was a plan to build more council houses. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that better? Affordable housing has become quite a murky policy area. So, when we say council homes, I think what most people would understand and what I would understand is low rent homes Mm. that have some kind of security of tenure associated with them. So any acknowledgement that that's part of the solution is really positive, especially considering where we were last year with the Housing and Planning Act that really just drove a bulldozer through social housing in this country. I think some of the follow-up after the speech suggested that the two billion they are thinking it is going to genuinely go to social rent council homes, which is a good thing. But this stands against the 2.3 billion that's already been allocated to starter homes, which are a discounted home ownership product. 
none of which have been built because it's a totally weird policy, to be honest. Mm. Um, and then 3.4 billion that's already been spent on shared ownership. So it is a, is a drop in the ocean in terms of the overall investment in housing. Um, and if you take into account the help to buy announcement as well, overall it means that 84% of financial support that the government is putting into housing in general is going to propping up the private market. Mm. It was a very underwhelming announcement. Based on the spin, we were hoping to see things like uh, lifting the cap on councils being able to borrow to build housing. There's issues around them not being able to actually spend their right to buy receipts on replacing those council homes that are getting sold off. But what we did see was another clear expression of frustration with developers, um, which is positive, and some reference to councils needing stronger planning powers to get developers building. But the really important thing that was missing was halting the sell-off of public land. It is absolutely crazy to be expecting councils to build more council homes whilst you're also forcing them to sell off the land that they do already have that they could be building those homes on to private developers selling to the highest bidder. That is directly contradictory to getting more affordable homes built. Okay, so, so, so it's less than ideal. Um, but what about the energy price cap that the Conservative government uh, is planning to introduce? Andrew, how does that compare to what Labour said they'd do? Well, it's another of those um, things that's good but doesn't go far enough. The point here is if you stay on a tariff and you don't do anything about it, so if you just kind of ignore your energy bills, and many people do, um, and it's a bit like the same with your bank account, actually, you also get penalised if you don't do anything, or your insurance, all mm. of these things, if you just don't do anything about them and challenge those companies on how much they're charging you, they'll gradually creep up the tariff. Once the introductory, fantastic introductory offer that they gave you when you first joined them finishes, they gradually crank up the prices and you'll find you're paying a lot more than you thought you were paying and the idea with this is that it would stop that happening so it would cap those prices at certain levels so that companies couldn't keep doing that which is a really good start but i i just think the the big intervention that has to happen in in energy is to break these people up some of those big companies get the gas out the ground they own the power stations they own some of the pipes that between the power stations and our homes or other places. And then they also own the call centres that sell us the energy at the consumer end. And that's and that's not entirely healthy. Riling me up, Andrew. I'm going to get on the blower to my big player and give him an earful. Good, you should. <laughs> oh, I'm going to. I'm going to. Check your bill. Seriously, check your bill. Right, I'm going to get on it. It's going on my to-do list. Okay, Lib Dems. So what were they saying about these issues at their conferences? What do we need to know? Sarah. So I actually think Vince Cable's analysis of kind of what's wrong with our economy was really good. He raised the idea that um, we're really reliant on credit creation, on debt and property speculation, you know, a booming housing market. Um, unfortunately, that's quite accurate. On housing, I think what was interesting is that he mentioned not just the supply of housing, but also what feeds into housing demand. That was something that was missing from May and Corbyn's speech. Nobody really talked about the main source of housing demand, which is our, all of our need to use housing now as our kind of way of saving, helping us through to old age. These are really tricky issues because people are hanging their kids' deposits, their university fees, their pensions, they're hanging everything on capital growth in their home. And that's something that we're all kind of forced to do. So that this is quite a tricky, tricky, thorny issue that no one's really talking about. 
So what should we expect from the conferences that haven't already finished yet, Andrew? Well, Scottish National Party, phenomenal news, uh, already happened, fracking ban. There is now they, there was a moratorium for a while, as there, as there still is in Wales, but now fracking has been banned. So no more fracking news. in Scotland? Which is, the, theoretically, I mean, you know, bans can be undone, but, um, you know, with a changing government, and of course... The interesting thing about the SNP conference is it's a bit muted because they didn't really have a very good election in June. Their position, I guess, they would have hoped to consolidate, but the Conservatives mm. um, made some considerable inroads. So, um, so yes, it is. Um, it's secure as long as, I mean, I guess in terms of the Scottish Parliament, the Scottish Nationalists are fairly secure, so you can expect that to go on. And it's a, it's a beacon of hope, really, for those who are every day currently in Lancashire, walking slowly in front of the lorries to slow down the process of fracking as it's getting underway mm. on one of those sites just outside Preston, which is heroic, heroic effort, and they'll be hugely buoyed by this. So it's fantastic news. And then I guess the thing that New Economics Foundation would love to celebrate is that they've also announced an investment bank, a national investment bank in Scotland, which is something that we've lobbied for for quite a while. Mm. It's good news because... We need banks who have at their heart an interest in developing and investing in the core infrastructure that people rely on, that people really want. Mm. Um, because so often what we get out of the kind of banks we, we have at the moment, these large private banks, is stuff that perhaps for mo for you and I really have make a big impact on our lives. Whereas the everyday things that we need, and this goes back to some of the things about energy that we were talking about earlier, really, really important to have some uh, something like a national investment bank and probably local banks. Mm. So in Germany, for instance, which is always held up as a model in this respect, they have a national investment bank, but also banks at the, at the regional level, at the state mm. level, which are national or, national or regional investment banks. And that makes a big difference to their infrastructure. And it's an integral part, really, of making a, industri a real industrial strategy work you have to have capital that is willing to invest over the long term. Mm. Um, and a national investment bank can help that happen. So I guess another, interestingly, another conference that a lot of people will be looking at that maybe haven't done before, it would have been very, of, of high interest in Northern Ireland, but probably less so on the, in mainland Britain, was, would mm. be the DUP conference, just because... And lest we forget, they are in a, um, well, they have a working arrangement with the Conservatives in government. So that will be of interest. The Greens also kind of had a disappointing election in a way. So the, the Green surge that was much talked about, uh, you know, before the 2015 election isn't there. And in fact, you know, this is the problem that the all of the, all of the smaller parties suffered in the June election was there was a huge movement back to the two main parties. 80% of the, of the people who voted voted either Labour or Conservative, which is totally against all of the political trends of the past decade and absolutely fascinating and probably essentially because those parties have, have polarised much more and have, mm. have, have moved out of the centre ground. Okay. Wonderful. Okay, so thanks, Sarah and Andrew, for giving me the lowdown on party conference season. It was very titillating. Um, so to finish up, I can say, I can say titillating. Come on. We're all adults here. I'm sorry, listeners. Okay, right, let's get it's it together. That is the deep sarcasm. 
Also, just typically, I've not heard that for a long time. I've heard that for a long time. <laughs> We're bringing it back. It's very oh. Frankie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to finish up, as well as all of the speeches by politicians and the late night knees ups at party conferences, we also have fringe events. So that's where some of the most interesting discussions take place. So, uh, Sarah Nandu, if you could organise a fringe event at a party conference and ask the questions that you really think need answering, the burning, burning questions, what would it be and who would you invite? So, Andrew, I'm going to start with you. Um, well, well, my fringe event, and I would like, I'd actually like all of the parties to come to this one, we touched on it earlier, would be a Brexit fringe event. And I, would, I wouldn't let them, I'd lock the door and I wouldn't <laughs> let them leave the room until they told me what they were actually going to do about yeah. Brexit. That sounds yes. You should do that. That's really wise. I think yeah. that would be, less of a yeah. fringe event than a hostage situation. Well, yeah. 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 It is. I mean, I'm thinking, thinking this one through. Maybe I wouldn't do, be do in the room. Do it for the nation, Andrew. Yeah. Do it for the nation. Yeah. yeah. I think you need strong facilitation. Yeah. Very um, strong facilitation. It would be a, maybe it'd be best if it was like an emergent process. So you have a coach and just <laughs> them in the room, and the rest of us can watch on Channel yeah. Five. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a Hunger Games scenario. A kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Okay. Great. With a diary room. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's great. I'd go to that. Um, Sarah, what, what have you got for us? Um, so I, my fringe event would be asking the question of should we ban work agencies? So basically um, these huge companies that recruit people for short-term work, often on really bad conditions. I'd be interested to understand whether that would help to ease potential tensions in some regions between people who are residents of the UK and nationals of the UK and people who are coming in to work on those short-term contracts. Amazing. So thank you again, Andrew and Sarah, um, for being our guest this week. I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have too. Feels good to be back. <laughs> As always, thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do think about leaving us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcasts app. It only takes a minute uh, and it really helps bump us up in the charts, which helps other people discover us too. Uh, and make sure you're subscribed to the Weekly Economics Podcast in the app of your choice to get new episodes every week. If you've got a question you'd like us to answer, tweet us at the Weekly Econ Pod. Or if you just want to troll us, that's great. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and Hugh Jordan and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week.